In recent weeks, if you've been following the news at all, or really even if you haven't been following the news, I'm not sure quite how you could miss it. There has been much political turmoil in our nation. And along with it has come much partisan bickering. And what grieves me is is two things. First of all, I'm neither a Democrat nor a Republican, but as a Christian, it grieves me so to, to so frequently see people in both parties who claim to follow Christ misrepresenting and mocking people of the other party. This is so very far from the way of Jesus. While many feel they are speaking the truth, and that's debatable, certainly up for debate, I'm not sure how they can make the case, even to themselves, that they are speaking the truth in love. And that's what we as Christians are called to do. We are to speak the truth in love. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to love even your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. But that's all a message for a different day. The second thing that grieves me is that I have seen too many Christians who have joy or despair that is so inextricably wrapped up in the political process. Now, I'm not saying that there haven't been times at which we could rejoice or be saddened by the things that happen in our country. Certainly, there are times that good Christian folks can rejoice or be saddened, and we certainly can debate over which times are which, and good Christian folks can disagree on that. But people increasingly seem to be in our culture rejoicing or despairing at political events. And and you can see it in, in political defeats, certainly, where people despair, or you can even pick up a hint of it on the backside through the political uh, victories that people feel that they've experienced. I just saw uh, last night a fellow pastor who had, uh, without a hint of irony, rejoiced at Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation yesterday, saying, yes, the republic has been saved. As if his not being Uh, confirmed would have been the end of the republic. It seemed a little melodramatic to me. It seemed that we're too invested in these things, perhaps. We've set them too high, making them almost an idol, if almost is even the word. Now, I'm not saying we can't be happy or sad about political events again. I think we should be involved in the political process. I think you should have opinions about the political process. I think you should vote this Uh, next month when you have the opportunity. And you should feel good about what you're voting for. You should be committed to those ideas. Educate yourself and, and believe those things. That is all completely right. But your ultimate joy should not be defined by political victories. Your ultimate joy should be in the advancement of the gospel. That's what we see in first or Philippians 1, 12 through 26. We see that Paul was joyful. And his joy was in the advancement of the gospel. Throughout a non-believing world, 
within the church and even in himself. Let's take a look at that passage together in Philippians 1, verses 12 to 26. But first, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you indeed would be with us now as we turn to your word. Speak to us. Mold us into the people you would have us be, not so that by being the right people we might earn your blessing, but rather because Christ Jesus already has earned that blessing for us, let us live holy lives that honor him. May we be like Christ Jesus, for he dwells within us by his spirit. May we walk in his holiness with holy steps ourselves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 12, this is the inspired word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We see very clearly in this passage that the most important thing to Paul is the advancement of the gospel. He, he pretty much says it. I, I'm okay with suffering. I'm okay with hurting. I'm okay with hardship. I'm even okay with death. Just in so far as the gospel might be advanced. 
and his circumstances were bad. You know, it's, it's great for somebody to say that when they're living high on the hog, when everything's going well, and they say, well, however God has it, that's great. But he knew what it was to suffer. He knew what it was to have hardship. At the very time when he is writing this, it's not actually him writing it, it's being transcribed for him. He is dictating it. And the reason he's probably dictating it is because his writing hand is chained to a Roman guard. He is bound. His circumstances are bad from an earthly perspective. But his bad circumstances have given opportunities for the gospel to advance. And he is joyful. The gospel is advancing throughout a non-believing world. He says so in verse 12. I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it is becoming known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. I think that when we think about the, the gospel advancing, this is what we normally think about. We think about among non-believers, right? We think of, of world missions or even local missions where we, we take the word of God, the gospel proclamation out to those who do not know it or who have not responded to it. And we preach the gospel to them and they respond to it and they become believers and we rejoice. That was happening. It was happening, he says, amongst the imperial guard, the military guard that was charged with, with guarding Nero's house. It's significant that he brings up the imperial guard for a couple of reasons. He, he, he brings them up, I think, in part because of who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the church at Philippi. And what we need to know about Philippi is it was largely a, a Roman colony for retired soldiers. So, so many of the people within the church, we assume, are from the families of retired soldiers. It's kind of like if Paul was to write a letter to, to the church of Calvary in Flint, right? He might write a letter and make some mention about General Motors. And it would kind of catch our attention. Oh, wow, yeah, General Motors. I have a connection there, right? It, it's kind of like that. There's that connection that he's, he's drawn in. But, but he's also speaking about them because that, that is what's happening in his life. That is his point of reference. Like I've said, he is chained to a, a Roman guard at this very point. This imperial guard is, is there. They, they had different people would come in. You'll recall that Paul was under house arrest. And, and so a guard would come in and they would chain themselves to him and he would be bound to them, unable to go or do anything without that guard being with them. He had no privacy. He had no freedom. People could come and visit him, but, but this guard was right there the whole time. They, they could he could write letters to people. He dictated, and, and the guards would be hearing that. But, but what happens to this process is these guards who are rotating through one after another after another, guarding Paul, they're with Paul 24 hours a day, right there. They get an upfront, up-close view of what the gospel is doing in his life, of how he is sharing the gospel with others, how he is joyful even in the midst of this tribulation and and they realize that there is something different here, something powerful here that is happening. And the gospel advances in their lives as guards. So that we read here that indeed it, it advanced throughout the whole imperial guard. And perhaps even and when we come to chapter 4, we read that there are those within Caesar's household that send their greetings. 
Perhaps that's how the gospel found its inroads to Caesar's household, is through these guards that, that guarded them. Well, regardless, the, the gospel was, was moving. It was advancing amongst these guards. And all the rest, we see other non-believers who have come into contact with Paul. He, he is imprisoned, but his imprisonment is for Christ. You know, he, he was sent to prison, and, and he appealed ultimately to Caesar. And he's, he, he appeals to, to Caesar and ends up coming to Rome for that very purpose. But, but ultimately, he sees his imprisonment as being an imprisonment of Christ. It is by Christ and for Christ and of Christ. And, and it's kind of a crazy thing, I think, because, because if God had come to me and said, Hey, Pete, I'm trying to figure out a way to evangelize uh, the first century world. Any, any suggestions, Pete? Well, of all the things I would have come up with, I guarantee you it wouldn't have been this. Well, God, take your best evangelist. And lock him up. Put him in jail so he can't go out and talk to anyone. Surely that'll help spread the gospel. I wouldn't have thought of that one. I don't know. I'm not quite as bright as some of you, so maybe you would have thought of it. I don't know. But it was the plan of God. And God often works in that way. You see, because, because while it doesn't make sense to us, he has his plans. He has what he is doing. And while Paul was chained up, the gospel was not Chained up. He says as much to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is never bound. It is living and active, and every time it goes out, it produces what it is intended to produce. That's why Paul is joyful even given his circumstances. That's why even in the midst of of these trials and these difficulties, he is joyful because he knows that God is at work in those circumstances. He is accomplishing his purposes. And he is taking the gospel to non-believers. The gospel is advancing throughout a non-believing world. The gospel is also advancing amongst the church. And that's an important factor. Verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There seems to be an implication here, doesn't there, that at one time, the people in the church were, were reticent to share the gospel with others. They were, they were fearful to do so. It's not hard to believe, is it, that, that people might be fearful about sharing the gospel, that they might be uncomfortable about sharing the gospel. I'm not going to ask for a share of hands here, but just ask this to, to yourself. Who among us has at some point or another been, been uncomfortable or fearful about sharing the gospel with someone else? It, it's very reasonable, we would think. Because we've all been there before. And that's how it was in Rome. But things were changing amongst the church in Rome. Five or six years earlier, Paul had actually sent a letter to this church. And in the context of that letter, he had assured them, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He would go on to write 
that I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He could have said, I am sure that neither imprisonment nor chains could separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful promises, but could they really believe them? That's the question the Romans had. Can we really believe these promises that Paul has for us? Can we really believe that God is at work in all things? Can we really believe that there's nothing that could separate us from his love? But then Paul came to Rome. Again, he didn't come on a pleasure trip. He was imprisoned, appealing to Caesar. He was locked up. And as people saw him and became aware of him, they began to realize that no matter how bad it was for Paul, he would not deny the gospel. These weren't just empty words that Paul had sent to them. He actually believed them. He was actually joyful in the midst of these terrible circumstances. And and God seemingly was actually at work in his life. And they, as a result, became emboldened that they might proclaim the gospel fearlessly. Paul's joy abounded all the more. He became even more joyful. Because that's what was important to him, that the gospel would be Proclaimed, And it wasn't a matter of him being able to say, well, hey, church in Rome, I did this. You know, I, I accomplished all these things, and aren't I this super mega church pastor? No, that wasn't his attitude at all. We can see it in verses 15 and following. He speaks of how some speak, or some, some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and, and others for good, goodwill. Some do it out of love, and others, others do it to, to afflict me in my imprisonment, he says, but, but he says, you know what? I don't care why they proclaim it. It doesn't matter why. So long as they proclaim the gospel. So long as they proclaim the gospel. So long as they proclaim that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I don't care why they're doing it. I don't care who's doing it. I don't care how they're doing it. Just proclaim that gospel message that it might take root in the lives of people and grow and flower and bear fruit. That is all he cares about. And we should love the gospel being proclaimed in that very same way. We should long for it to bear fruit. We should long for the kingdom of God to grow. We should, we should desire for that to happen here at Calvary. And we should be, be doing everything we can to make that happen Beginning here at Calvary, we should be joyful when it does, but you know what? We should be just as joyful if it happens at Peace Presbyterian across town, if it happens at Emmanuel Baptist down the street, if it happens at some other church. We should be just as joyful when the gospel, the true gospel, is proclaimed and when the kingdom grows. I'm not just talking about church growth like numbers, more people. I'm talking about kingdom growth. People actually leaving the kingdom of darkness and coming into the kingdom of light. I'm talking people who are in the kingdom already growing in the depth of their faith and understanding and trust in Christ Jesus. We should rejoice at this growth like Paul 
rejoices when the gospel advances within the church. So he rejoices that it is advancing in an unbelieving world. He rejoices that it is advancing within the church. He rejoices, too, that it's advancing even within himself. We see Paul growing here in joy. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. His joyce is abounding more and more. We see him growing in hope. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. He, he's not just wishing this to be true. He is hoping that it would. He is counting on it. He is trusting in God. He is expecting it, a confident expectation in God to work for his deliverance. His deliverance, by the way, not just his deliverance from imprisonment, but, but ultimately his salvation, right? His ultimate deliverance. He's growing in courage. But that, in verse 20, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. Why could he be so courageous? Why could he be so courageous? It's because of his mindset that Christ was what was most important to him. Christ was of foremost importance to him. For to me, to live is Christ, he says. And to die is gain. It's an awfully freeing thing. When the worst thing they can do to you is actually the best thing they can do for you. Right? He says to die is gain. If they kill me, I win. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderfully freeing scenario, isn't it? When, when even if they kill you, you come out ahead. That, that's why he could be courageous. He had nothing to fear. It's not that he wanted to die, just ultimately that, that his life wasn't about him. His life wasn't even his life. It belonged to God. And so he gave it all to God. You know, you'll notice back in verse 16, he said, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That, that phrase put here actually could have been translated even more literally, I am, I am stationed here. Right? As he's speaking to these families of, of soldiers and, and, and retired soldiers, he says, this is, my, this is my outpost here. This is where God has stationed me. I am working on the orders of a commanding officer, and that commanding officer has sent me here. This is my outpost, and I am a faithful and loyal soldier, and I am here fulfilling my duty, serving at his will. So if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Great. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. If it's just left up to me, hey, just let me die. I'll go be with Jesus. Things are better for me. But, but it's not about me. He says in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. See, what he's saying here is, is it, it might be easier for me or happier for me or more, more, more pleasant for me if I just died, but, but it's not about me. It's about you as well. And God wants to use me to serve you. And so since you need to be served, I, I, I'm happy to stay here and be, be serving God by serving you. 
it's a truly humble mindset. I think it was C.S. Lewis once said that, that not, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but rather thinking of yourself less. Right? It's not thinking, oh, I'm a worm, but rather you're just not even thinking about how it impacts you. You think of others before you think of yourself. It's a very gospel-oriented mindset. And so he says, convinced of this, I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that you, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So the gospel was advancing in Paul. If there's room for the gospel to advance in Paul, then there's room in all of us for the gospel to advance. So know this. When you're facing trials, don't think that these trials came along because God was asleep at the wheel. Don't think it is a matter of God not caring or not paying attention or or not wanting to do anything. When trials come and we are powerless to do anything about them, that is an opportunity for God to work mightily through our weakness. And sometimes he works mightily for our deliverance from that trial. And other times he doesn't. But he always has a purpose in our pain for his glory and ultimately for our good. Sometimes it's hard to see. It requires faith trusting in him. And sometimes we, we long to ask questions. God, what, what are you doing here? And that's all right. Just think of John the Baptist, right? He's, he's in prison and, and he sends his messengers to Jesus and kind of says, hey, hey Jesus, uh, all that stuff I said about you being the one. But I, I was right about that, right? Uh, you are the one, right? He was asking questions. That's all right. We can ask questions of God. He's big enough to take it. And know that the pain is still very real. Even if we know that God is at work in and through our pain, it is still pain. Imagine Mary at the foot of the cross. This mother watching her beloved child, her baby boy being brutally murdered on the cross. I, I can hardly imagine the pain that ripped her heart apart on that day. And even after he had risen from the dead, I, I think you walk with a limp for the rest of your life after something like that. The pain is real. But God is truly working and so in your lives today, God is working. And you might have pain that I can hardly imagine. You might have difficulties that, that, that I can't even fathom. But I am sure of this. God is at work in them. Dear child of God, I know this with absolute certainty. In the midst of your trials, and in the midst of your very, very deep pain and your very real suffering God is at work for his glory and for your good he has promised one day that he will eliminate all suffering he will make all things right it will all come together in a beautiful tapestry and we will see it all and we will know this 
forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation that he is forming us into. He has promised as much and you can trust his promise for the future because he has proven faithful in the past. Consider the lengths to which he has already gone. He has set aside his glory. He, he deigned to take on human flesh. And he died the most painful of deaths, not just physically painful, but mentally painful, excruciatingly and agonizingly torturous ignominity of crucifixion. You know, there have been many other so-called messiahs that had come before Jesus, others who, who claimed to be the messiah, and, and they eventually died, and all their followers went away. Because there's no sense following a dead messiah. But with Jesus, his death was different. His death was different for two reasons. One, because, because he was fully man, but at the same time, he was not just a man. He was God in the flesh. He was the, the holy son of God, infinitely holy. And through his sacrificial death, the sins of his people, those who trusted in him, were forgiven. And so even in his death, there is reason to rejoice. But beyond that, his death is different because when he died, he did not stay dead. But on the third day, he rose from the dead and he lives even now. He rose to validate his victory over sin and death and to give us a guarantee of our own future resurrection that we might live with him and reign with him forever and ever and ever. And that's how we as Christians get to a place where we can celebrate the death of our Messiah. That's what we do. That's what we do every time we come to this table. You see, that's what Paul tells us. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's what we do at this table. We proclaim the Lord's death and we rejoice in it. We rejoice in it. Which is all the more reason I wish that we as a church perhaps followed the, the historic pattern of the church and partake of the Lord's Supper more often. For, for that opportunity to proclaim the Lord's death, to partake in the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. But for today, thankfully, we come to the table. We do partake of that. We do proclaim that. We become spiritually nourished. We receive the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. We proclaim Christ and him crucified, having died that we might live, and now living once more that we might never die. And we come here to this table for an appetizer, for a, a foretaste, if you will, of the wedding feast of the Lamb, which will be forever ours when the Lord returns. And whereas our political ideologies can tear us apart, is at this table that we come together. We come together as one, one body, with one God, one Savior, one Lord, one faith and one spirit dwelling in us all. We come to this table and receive the gift of Jesus.